Hi, everyone. This is Jason Rosenbaum, a political correspondent with St. Louis Public Radio. Late last month, I spent quite a bit of time talking with Liz Smith, a Democratic communication strategist who recently released Any Given Tuesday, a political love story. It's a vulnerable, thought-provoking, and often hilarious book about regional and national politics. Smith gained national prominence with her work on Pete Buttigieg's presidential campaign in 2020, but she spent a bit of her career in Missouri. To start off, I asked Smith about the general reception for the book, which has become a New York Times bestseller. Well, you know, when you write a book for the first time, you have no idea how it's going to be received. Um, But it has been really encouraging. Obviously, I was thrilled to make the New York Times bestseller list. But I've been thrilled with the response I've received from from people. Um, And when I set out to write this book, I didn't want just to write a very partisan book or even a super political book. I want to write a book that um, Democrats, Republicans, and apolitical people alike um, would take to. And I've been really hardened to see um, that you know, that's been the case. And, you know, it's interesting. I have heard from um, staffers for some very, very high profile Republicans um, in Washington who said that they loved it. But I've also heard from a lot of my friends um, and friends of friends who aren't political at all that they loved it. So that's exactly what I was aiming for. And I'm really, really, really happy with the response. If people are really into politics, they know you best from your work with Pete Buttigieg's 2020 campaign. But I got to know you in the mid to late 2000s because of your work in Missouri. So could you explain to our listeners what your connection to Missouri politics was and how you lived here for a few years? Yes. So I um, I moved to Missouri in September of 2005, and I was uh, one of Claire McCaskill's first staffers on her U.S. Senate campaign against Jim Talent. Um, and I started out, I didn't really have any sort of title. I was just a junior communications staffer. I also happened to be dating uh, Jeff Smith who then was running for state Senate in St. in St. Louis. And so um, he and I lived together for a few years and I worked for Claire um, from September, 2005 until November, 2006, when she um, beat Jim Talent. So it was, um, that was obviously an amazing experience. I assume we'll talk about that, but um Subsequent to that, I worked, uh, I did, I worked for Chris Coster when he switched parties. Um, He was Republican state senator, switched parties um, when he was running for attorney general to run as a Democrat. And so I helped him do his party switch and I worked for him for a few months after that. Um, But that's the extent of my Missouri experience, but it was, um, Claire's race was my first race in communications. Um, and it plays a big role in my book. I know you only mentioned the Coster switch in like one sentence in your book. I mean, it makes sense because it was a short amount of time, but I think for people that were not there in 2007, I cannot emphasize enough how big of a deal that was and also how difficult of an assignment it was for you, 
given how much blowback he got from Democrats. Now, in retrospect, like, is it the biggest thing to happen in Missouri politics ever? Clearly not. We had a governor resign four years ago. (laughs) Can you just kind of talk about that experience before we delve more into the McCaskill talent race? Yeah. So, um, so in 2007, um, Costa reached out to me, Chris Costa reached out to me because he was colleagues with Jeff Smith in the um, state Senate. And um, he was planning on running for attorney general as a Republican, but he was um, a Republican who was increasingly out of step with his party um, and was much more um, he was much more moderate than the, the the Missouri Republican Party and the Missouri Republican Party over the last um, you know twenty years has gotten increasingly conservative um, and has gone um, increasingly to the right and so it would have been very difficult for him to get through a Republican primary and it probably would have forced him to take positions that were would have been very uncomfortable for him and that he wouldn't have been able to take. So he decided um, that um, the Republican party was no longer his home and that he was gonna switch to the Democratic party. But in switching to um, the Democratic party, right? He was then stepping into a Democratic primary for attorney general that was filled with uh, a number of prominent Democrats um, like uh, who was it? It was there was a state was, uh, Mar- Yeah, Margaret Donnelly, who's the state yeah. representative, and also Jeff Harris, who yeah. is the House Minority Leader, and, and also a fourth candidate, Molly Williams, is her name. Okay. I I can't remember what I did ten minutes ago, but I can remember an obscure fourth place finisher from an attorney general's race. But but continue. I because I think she, I think she got in after I left the race, but um so. Um, it was a massive story, right? When Coster switched parties. And I think people sort of figured out maybe what was going on when the media advisory for his party switch went out under my name, because, and I think you were the first reporter to call me about it being like, what's going on here? It was, yes, that was, I've mentioned this on Twitter, like, seven times in the last 15 years I'm always like well this is the anniversary of Chris <laughs> and I knew it because Liz Smith was the uh, person on it and you know the interesting thing was like I don't know if I dealt with you directly that much during the McCaskill campaign I think I dealt with Adrian Marsh more on a day-to-day basis but I definitely recognized your name because I think you were on all of the media advisories for McCaskill. So that was a dead giveaway that something was up. And then I put like a blog post up mentioning you and somebody called me right away. It was like, he's switching parties, like get get ready for Coster McGinnon or something. But yeah, continue. Right. But um, so, I mean, it, it, generated a ton of press, right, locally. It even got, you know, national press. I remember New York Times, Washington Post coming in to um, cover it, which doesn't happen every day in a Missouri attorney um, general race. Um, But then as soon as he switched parties, yes, the incoming was swift, both from the right and the left. Um, I know that Republicans felt like he had betrayed them and his the Republican consultants who had worked with him 
um, were pleased with it. But then Democrats um, were also peeved by it because they knew that he would be a formidable candidate and that um, one, like the second he got in the race, right, he started to sort of set the pace for it. But two, that he he really bigfooted um, Jeff Harris and Margaret Donnelly um, and uh, it, that it was going to be tough for them to compete for attention. But yes, he did face attacks from both the right and the left The even before he officially announced that he was switching parties. So the reason I kind of mentioned that and wanted to go into a little bit of detail is I think that there has been a debate among Missouri Democrats for a long time about whether they should field like candidates with somewhat moderate political beliefs like Coster, like Coster, even after his party switch, was opposed to gun control and was generally like in line with Farm Bureau and other agriculture interests that are that are not really in line with the Democratic Party or whether they should be like full throated progressives who are championing their op or their proponency of abortion rights and their proponency of gun control. This seems to be a debate that's going on in other states that have become more Republican, like Ohio, Florida, you know, West Virginia used to be a Democratic state is now like a super Republican state. I'd be interested in your 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 take on whether either one of those like archetypes are the right one at this moment. Um, well, it's it's hard to to speak about it really in the abstract because. I think you and I both know that candidate quality matters a lot and um, that um, it takes in a state like Missouri that has trended so hard toward the right and moved um, so far rightward since I've worked there, you know, when I was in Missouri in 2006, it was still a swing state and there's no... Um, you know, there's no one I know that would ever describe it as a swing state now. And I think a lot of people who are newer to presidential politics would be shocked to, to know that in, in 2000, 2004, 2008, that Democrats were fighting so hard to um, win that state in presidential elections. So look, I think given the rightward shift of Missouri, it makes sense to have a Democrat that, um, you know, reflects the, you know, the values of the voters there, which is going to be very different from a candidate who reflects the values of voters where I live in, in New York state. Um, but, you know, if you have a good candidate who can connect with people, they can overcome having positions that maybe are are more unpopular with the broader electorate. So it, it really, it's, I'm not giving you a, a clear answer on it because it really depends on who the candidate is. But um, I've generally found, and, and this is something I write about in my book that um, we need to give, the Democratic Party needs to give candidates the permission um, to break with the national party on issues and to not expect every candidate to check every um, box on some sort of purity test list and that there is no one way to be a Democrat. 
And especially if the Democratic Party wants to be a majority party and expand our majority in the U.S. Senate, we've got to understand that there are going to be Democrats like Joe Manchin who are hold vastly different positions from, you know, a Democrat like Chuck Schumer, Kirsten Gillibrand. And but that's OK. And more Democrats is better than um, fewer Democrats. And if you think if you have, if you think you have a problem with a West Virginia Democrat, like, oh, boy, wait till you see a West Virginia Republican. Well, this kind of gets into your time with McCaskill in 2006, because when we talked with Senator McCaskill in actually 2013, when she first came on the Politically Speaking podcast, she said her biggest mistake in 2004, when she lost to Matt Blunt for governor, was not taking the effort to reach rural voters seriously. And it's obvious in 2006, she did a lot better because I don't think she would have won if she would have gotten her margins better. How do you think that she was able to do that from your vantage point in the campaign? Yeah, no, that's a really, really important point. And it's one that Democrats can learn from everywhere. And we are actually seeing more Democrats put that into um, action in this cycle than we did really in the last um, couple cycles. A couple Democrats that I'd highlight are, you know, Tim Ryan in Ohio, Beto O'Rourke in Texas is doing this, where they've realized what Claire did, which is that you can't just um, think that you'll win a state that is uh, trending red or traditionally red by running up the margins in Democratic areas. Um, so in Missouri, you know, you can't just think you're going to win if you run up the margins in Kansas City, St. Louis, Columbia. Um, that just doesn't work anymore. And it wouldn't have worked in 2006. So what Claire understood was that um, part of how you win is, yes, you try to run up the margins there, turn out Democratic voters um, in, the, in those places. But then cut into Republican margins in, you know, outstate Missouri, in rural Missouri. So what that looks like is going to a county that maybe is traditionally 80-20 Republican and cutting the margin to 70-30, 60-40, 55-45, whatever it is. And knowing that you're not going to the county because you're going to win it. But that if you if you go to enough of these counties and you cut into the Republican margin enough, then that's going to add up and that's going to be what will put you over the edge to win. And there Democrats have gotten a little bit away from that strategy. Um, and it frankly, it's the strategy that Barack Obama used to win states like Indiana in 2008, to win states like Ohio in 2008 and 2012, because um, he understood that it's not just about, you know, running up the score with the base, it's about persuasion. And um, again, going back to what I said earlier, if Democrats want to be a majority party, we have got to be a party of persuasion, a party that goes everywhere and is willing to talk to rural voters, not because we think we're going to win the rural vote, but we can win enough rural voters to help us win elections. One of the challenges you talk about in this book is McCaskill's opponent, who at the time was Jim Talent, 
And unlike a lot of Republican incumbents that year, he didn't really have like a really obvious weakness. There were there were candidates that cycle that were, you know, under legal trouble, like Conrad Burns in Montana, or that made gaffes like George Allen in Virginia. How did the campaign try to find a weakness with talent? Right. Um, well, we knew that we were not going to be able to um, portray him as some like villainous goon, some um, heartless, corrupt Republican. And, and Claire was pretty explicit when she would do interviews or when she'd go out and hit the stop and talk with voters. She would say, look, I think Jim Talent is a nice guy. I think Senator Talent's a nice guy. But the problem is that he's not on your side. And on important issue after important issue, um, you know, he sold out the people of Missouri and I'm going to go to Washington to be an advocate for you. And so what we made it about was not a, a character attack on Jim Talent. And, you know, a lot of races are decided by that, by, you know, debates over candidates' um, characters. What we made it was a, we turned it into a debate over his priorities and his policies because we understood that we would never be able to portray him as, you know, this villain. And it ended up being extremely effective um, because one, it was credible. Um, voters can smell BS, right? They can tell if um, you're selling them a bill of goods and it, it doesn't comport with reality. Um, but two is that Jim Talent had embraced a number of policies that were really um, unpopular uh, with the people of Missouri um, and that had that allowed us to portray him as out of touch, whether it was on healthcare policies, economic policies, foreign policy. Um, and ultimately, that's why people went with Claire, because she combined a message um, with tactics that showed her as the candidate who was better in touch with Missourians, whether they lived in St. Louis, Kansas City, Columbia, or lived in, you know, outstate. The other thing that you mentioned that often is forgotten now because it's just not as big of an issue is the stem cell amendment. One of the parts in your book that I found to be like a really well-written foreshadowing element was the fact that you staffed Michael J. Fox before his first interview with my former colleague, uh, Joe Manis. Can you talk about that moment? Because not only was it a memorable moment in your political career, but it also showcased something in your personal life that would become much more relevant to you. That's one of those moments in a campaign where you don't realize, you know, when you're driving up, when I was driving over to the hotel to, you know, staff Michael J. Fox for interviews, I didn't realize that this was going to be like a watershed moment in the campaign, that this was going to be massive in the campaign. Um, so for those, um, so for people who aren't necessarily familiar with the ins and outs of, of that campaign and why Michael J. Fox played such a big role in it was, um, you know, in addition to Claire being on the ballot in 2006, there was an amendment um, on the ballot to legalize stem cell research. And it was um, a very, very contentious issue. And I think that the ballot initiative ended up being a closer race than the U.S. Senate race, or it was yeah, very- Yeah, I think it ended up passing like 
51-48. Obviously, those numbers don't equal 100, but it was very close. And it was notable it was that close because the opposition did not have a, nearly as much money. It also, it was the political fault lines that developed around it were fascinating too, because it wasn't just right versus left. In the Republican Party, there was a big split. Then Republican Governor Matt Blunt supported the amendment, um, whereas Jim Talent, you know, had been, we sort of backed him into a corner and he ended up um, opposing the amendment, you know, casting his lot with the, um, you know, the religious conservatives who opposed it. And that was a, sort of a surprising development. We weren't really sure where he was going to land on that debate, but it gave us a, um, a very clear contrast to, to run with in the campaign. So that all is a back backdrop for why Michael J. Fox um, came to Missouri, because Michael J. Fox was is a huge advocate for stem cell research. Um, you know, just I think seven years prior, he had sort of stunned the world. I think it was six or seven years prior, he had stunned the world with the announcement that he had Parkinson's disease, and um, uh, he devoted he spent a lot of time going out and campaigning for um, healthcare initiatives. Um, any any sort of um, potential for a cure like um, stem cell research that could help um, unlock a cure for, for Parkinson's. And I remember um, when I showed up and, you know, he, I think he had about four back-to-back -back interviews. I was absolutely shocked at the severity of his symptoms of Parkinson's. And, you know, I had seen other people with Parkinson's up front, up close, but um, I think it was really jarring seeing someone who you sort of associated with being this very boyish um, American icon, um, just really physically struggling with um, you know all of the the um, debilitating symptoms that come along with Parkinson's, and it was very hard to watch up close. And I talk about how in the first interview when he sat down with Joe Manis. Um, because I think that his nerves, you know, exacerbated some of the symptoms that like, I like, you know, sort of hid my face and wiped away a tear because it was so hard to watch. And so, you know, politically, it ended up being a very big deal because when he was in town for Claire, he, um, in addition to doing those interviews, he cut an ad for her that we premiered during the World Series when the Cardinals were playing Detroit Tigers. I just right. Remember. That was the year they 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 weren't really that good, but they won the World Series anyway. Exactly. But so, and we we knew that it was a really really powerful ad, and it was one of those ads where there are no bells and whistles. Um, it was just Michael J. Fox direct to camera, you know, speaking very stark language about what was at stake um, in the Senate race, and you had choice between Claire McCaskill, who supported life-saving cures and um, gym talent. And so we saved it we, to premiere during the World Series. And it was like a nuclear bomb when we dropped it um, because it did undermine one of, um, you know, Jim Talent's core strengths, right? Because yes, it was about policy, but it, it did get to his character a little bit because how could any, you know, 
how could any good, decent person oppose a cure for, you know, something as debilitating as um, Michael J. Fox's Parkinson's. And that was sort of the backdrop um, to the words, to the language in the ad was, you know, leaving viewers wondering and, and asking that question. And it led to this just massive, massive political firestorm where, you know, you had Rush Limbaugh then go out on his radio show that was live streamed to the web and saying, um, he went and said that Michael J. Fox was um, uh, exaggerating the symptoms of his disease for show. And that's when I think, I don't know, I remember Joe Manis at the time being like, actually, you know, when I interviewed him, his, the, um, his symptoms were worse than I saw in the ad. And, you know, it ended up that Rush Limbaugh had to apologize for it. Um, it was a, something that, you know, Jim Talent had to answer for. And we saw Michael J. Fox replicate the ad for Democrats across the country because it was seen as being so effective. It did also have the effect of galvanizing the religious conservatives. And that's that's a fairly big block, voting block in Missouri. Um, but then, you know, on a personal level, I didn't know this at the time, but, um, you know, it was obviously it was, it was really emotional, really difficult seeing Michael J. Fox up close and the debilitating, um, symptoms of his disease. But then, um, five years later, my dad would get, um, diagnosed with Parkinson's and ultimately, um, you know, I, I closed my book with this in uh, almost a year ago in 20, September of 2021 he passed away from uh, complications uh, uh, complications of Parkinson's disease so it was sort of foreshadowing for um, you know personal uh, personal challenges that I would face and but it, it you know it allowed me to see what what Parkinson's did to someone up close um, before my dad ultimately got diagnosed with that. She ended up winning against Jim Talent and she won another term in 2012 against Todd Akin before losing to Josh Hawley in 2018. And I think that McCaskill basically extended the lifespan of the Missouri Democratic Party, probably for another six years because she won in 2012. But I'd be interested to hear what do you think her overall impact is not only on Missouri politics, but national politics in general? It does seem like she made an impact, especially in Missouri. Yeah, well, I agree with that, um, that uh, she was sort of a giant in Missouri politics and did, you know, the 2012 race was a very difficult race and by no means, um, you know, a gimme. And I think there was that un really, really unfortunate comment that Todd Aiken made. Um, wh what did he say? He said that- He said, uh, um, if it's a legitimate rape, right. the body has a way of shutting the whole thing down. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but- No, that, no that's that's how, what I would have, how I remembered the comment. And I that was one, that's again, Claire oftentimes- um, it's sort of interesting. It's she oftentimes found herself, whether it was in 2006 with the stem cell issue and Michael J. Fox ad or in 2012 with Todd Aiken and that comment, she found herself sort of 
her race is getting extremely nationalized, but in, in the middle of these national firestorms, because in 2012, I was on, um, I obviously, I wasn't in Missouri. I was working for Barack Obama as his director of rapid response in his Chicago headquarters. And I remember when we saw that clip, we knew that it, that it would have ramifications, not just in the Missouri Senate race. I mean, when we saw that, we were like, okay, well, this probably means that, you know, Claire's chances of winning just went up significantly, but we took it um, in Chicago and we made sure that every Republican across the country had to answer for those comments and, and including Mitt Romney and that what happened in Missouri didn't just stay in Missouri. Um, and subsequently you had another candidate that cycle, um, Richard Murdoch in Indiana, who had a similar moment in a debate where he described a pregnancy from rape as a gift from God. And again, it was another comment that we um, made sure that every Republican across the country had to answer for. And it was a comment that helped elect Joe Donnelly um, uh, as a senator from Indiana, because, you know, even though Indiana also um, is a more conservative state, certainly more socially conservative, and you have a big, big population there, religious conservatives, it was a bridge too far for voters there as well. Um, so, um, so yeah, so she found herself in both 2006 and 2012 in the middle of these national firestorms and helped, um, whether intentional or not, it gave Democrats, um, you know, really issues to help tie Republicans to. Um, and she also had developed a really distinct brand for herself in Washington as a, um, a, a Democrat who, as you sort of open this interview with, could appeal to rural voters. And she was someone who, when Barack Obama was running for president in 2008, she sort of served as one, she was a key endorser for him. She was the first woman US Senator to endorse him, but also made sure that um, when he was doing outreach that he didn't forget rural voters and that he, spoken a language that they would understand. Because um, sometimes, you know, as Democrats, we can sometimes gravitate toward language that people might identify as stereotypically coastal elitist, whatever. I remember Obama got in trouble for something he said about arugula or something like that. But Claire served as like a ballast for him and, and someone who would tell him when his, um, you know, when he was uh, sounding a little out of touch and elitist. And so played a really big role in that campaign, was a very big endorser for him um, and a really big validator because um, Hillary Clinton was leaning, as Hillary Clinton leaned increasingly into her historic status as potentially the first, you know, uh, woman nominee from a major party, Claire was a major validator for Barack Obama. So um, she is someone who, uh, and I could go on even longer, but I think that gives you a sense of the role that she played both in Missouri and in national politics. Um, and that's why I think she still is so prominent as a um, as a commentator on MSNBC, but so someone that the national press goes to because 
she's got a lot of credibility as a messenger who can appeal to both to voters, both blue and red. We'll be right back after this short break with more from Liz Smith. So you talked about how you were the director of rapid response for Barack Obama. And I want to read you a passage from the segment of your book where you talk about that. It felt like campaign reporters wanted the prestige of working at marquee publications without doing any of the hard gumshoe reporting of their predecessors. In earlier presidential cycles, the reporters that covered campaigns were hardened veterans, or at the very least, people who had spent several years cutting their teeth in less glamorous gigs in state capitals and city halls across the country. There's not, there's not much glory in filing dozens of public information requests to get to the bottom of sketchy construction contracts in Youngstown, Ohio, are taking two years to report on the self-dealing practices of a small town sheriff in Nevada. Now, I'll admit when I read that, that hit a little close to home because when I started at the Columbia Tribune, I was 22. Now, granted, I was not uh, doing what you were mentioning, which is like following around presidential campaigns. But I do kind of understand what you're saying there, but I, I kind of want you to elaborate on that because I do think that that has been a shift in political reporting over the last 10 to 15 years. Well, of course, and I'm not, <clears throat> my point there isn't to say 22 year olds shouldn't be reporters. I mean, obviously you've got to start somewhere. Um, and, um, uh, and I'm sure that 22-year-old Jason Rosenbaum was just one heck of a gumshoe reporter. Um, uh, I, I made my fair deal of fair share of mistakes, but I, 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 I'll let you keep going before I start like going into a nostalgic <laughs> wormhole. But I, I think what I, what I was trying to get at there was the flawed model for presidential coverage. And um, it's one thing to be a 22-year-old reporter um at the were you at the columbia daily tribune yes which had like a circulation of twenty five thousand at the time so it this was not the okay i want to make it clear i kind of made it clear in my my tongue-in-cheek comment this is not the same as following around you know barack obama or uh john mccain everywhere it was working at a regional newspaper but right. it was notable because since missouri was a swing state state i went to tons of presidential events that year. So it was kind of like I was covering the presidential race whenever Missouri was important at a particular point in time. So what what I talk about is how um, there's been a shift in the model of how um, major news organizations, national major national news organizations cover presidential races. And it's a shift that um, I think uh, does a disservice to news consumers and that does benefit the campaigns and the people who are trying to spin on behalf of campaigns. And um, because now um, what, what you've seen is, and in, in 2012, I, I talk about this dynamic was that 
New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, NBC, ABC, CBS, instead of having sort of hardened veterans covering the presidential race, they shifted to a model of having, you know, 22, 23, 24 year old, you know, fresh out of college or J school um, reporters who could just essentially just really just churn out um, copy very quickly for less money. Um, and having them follow around presidential candidates. And the problem with this model is that if you are 22, 23, 24 years old, it's gonna be harder for you to um, really stand up to a presidential candidate and a presidential candidate's staff, because you, know, you just haven't been in the business long enough and it's easier for them to um, try to railroad you um, and try to say, you know, if you, um, if you write, you know, anything that's at all critical of our campaign, then we'll just cut off access for you. And it creates sort of a Stockholm syndrome dynamic. It was actually, I think, David Axelrod who described it as a Stockholm syndrome dynamic, where the reporters are end up being sort of identifying with the candidates they, they cover and being sort of dependent on them. So rather than speaking truth to power, the incentive for them is to just sort of, you know, go along with the, with the candidates and their campaigns and their staffers rather than rocking the boat. Because if you rock the boat, then you risk, you know, um, sort of being, uh, alienated and being cut out from, you know, getting any scoops or anything like that. So it's a really unhealthy dynamic that then essentially reduces the embeds as they, as, as we call them, you know, the people who are on the plane with presidential candidates, it reduces the embeds to glorified stenographers. Um, and it takes away their incentive to um, challenge the, these presidential candidates and, isn't really that what you want? You want reporters who will vet these candidates who aren't afraid when they have a moment to ask a question, who aren't afraid to ask a really tough question. And the system that we have now with um, the embed system with major news publications has really disincentivized that. Did you see this trend continue in 2020 when you worked for Pete Buttigieg? What was interesting about 2020 is you had over 20 something candidates on the Democratic side. So their news outlets are going to be spread extremely, extremely thin. And on the Democratic side, in terms of um, campaigns who had embeds, you had the Biden campaign, you had Pete's campaign, you had Kamala Harris's campaign, you had Bernie Sanders' campaign, you had um, Elizabeth. Warren's campaign. Um, and then, uh, so news outlets had to devote so many resources there and reporters were spread even more thin. And um, uh, I would say that I was really impressed by the quality of um, the embeds who covered, uh, who covered Pete's campaign. And we gave them, it was a different dynamic frankly, than we saw with Romney in 2012, because one gamble that we made was that we would give reporters access no matter what. Um, and it was sort of uh, that access was the key to Pete succeeding. So reporters didn't, um, who covered Pete, 
faced completely different dynamics from the reporters who covered Romney. And there was no disincentive um, to ask Pete a tough question because we weren't going to punish reporters and say, oh, um, you don't get to cover him or you're off the bus because we knew that access was the name of the game and that would be how Pete would succeed. So I would say it was a little bit of a different dynamic. But yeah, issues with the embed system do persist. And I don't know, frankly, that it's going to be a bet, um, a bell that can be unrung by news organizations because it's sort of it's now a part of the system. And um, as long as there is some sort of counterbalance some counterweight where you do have you know, more veteran reporters go out occasionally or serve as you know, backstops with the embeds, um, there are ways that you can make the embed system work better. Now, before I launch into a couple of Buttigieg-related questions, can you just explain what your role on that campaign was? Yeah, so it was it's it's hard to say because it's it's sort of like not really a traditional role in presidential politics. But I was technically a senior advisor in communications. Um, I was his first staffer on his presidential race. I'd worked with him. I'd first met him in December of 2016 when he called me because he was um, looking to run for DNC chair. Um, and there was a big DNC chair race in uh, February of 2017. And so he ended up throwing his hat in the ring. And I just found him to be so unique and such a unique communicator, a breath of fresh air, someone who had a completely different profile from you know other people in national democratic politics and certainly anyone who was thinking about running for president you know he was a when he announced for president he was 37 year old mayor of the town of south bend indiana he was openly gay he was navy veteran um, he was a veteran of the war in afghanistan and so had a really really compelling um, biography and on top of all of that he was Rhodes scholar who speaks you know a gazillion languages um so certainly not the type of candidate that you see um every day and uh so i had worked with him for a couple years before he threw his hat in the ring for president he officially announced his um exploratory committee in uh, late january of 2019 um and uh, but my role with him was I was senior advisor for communications. I was one of his first staffers and I helped really um, craft his media strategy going into the race. And, um, you know, throughout the campaign, I um, oversaw his earned media strategy. I ran his debate prep and, you know, I came up with ideas like his all access bus tour that was um that tried to replicate uh john mccain's bus tour in the 2000 um, presidential campaign the straight talk express so um i was i oversaw all of his earned media strategy but one thing that was really critical to pete's rise was you know he had no money when he announced for um for president, he had no big national fundraising base. You know, again, he's the mayor of South Bend. He had no national name ID. And on top of that, I mean, his last name was this seemingly impossible to pronounce Maltese. It, it took a while for yeah. me to figure it out. We have weird names in Missouri, like Luke DeMeyer and yeah. Schaefer Potter. So I think we're, I'm used to 
um, strange sounding German names, but Buttigieg, which I think is Maltese. Yes, Maltese, yeah. It, it took a couple of tries and I probably had to go on YouTube and see him speak his own name before I got it right. Yeah. And so um, I assume we'll get more into this, but essentially we knew that uh, uh, he didn't have a lot of the um, advantages that a lot of presidential candidates have when they announce and that his only path, and it was a narrow path, but his only path to um, you know, catching fire with voters was going to be through the earned media because, you know, that's not contingent on money or name ID. It just is um, everyone has access to the press. And it's just a question of whether you can be compelling in the press. And I knew that Pete would be able to be. So, um, and so we adopted a strategy of really going everywhere and saying yes to a lot of interviews that um, most political candidates and certainly most presidential candidates would have said no to. Um, you know, in interviews with non-traditional outlets, non-political outlets that um, other campaigns would have said, well, what's the point? And that's how Pete really caught fire because he is in, an incredibly talented communicator. And we made it so that it was pretty hard to not hear, hear from him. So you, you alluded to this earlier, but his campaign was historic because it, he was the most viable candidate who was openly gay in modern political history. Yeah, I, I'm curious how often reporters wanted to hone in on that fact, because in my experience of covering openly gay politicians in Missouri, they either embrace that role because they need to be a communicator to defend LGBTQ rights, or they're asked about every conceivable issue that hits that sphere. And you could tell that they become very irritated by that and want to talk about other things. I'd be interested about what that dynamic was with Buttigieg, given that that was probably one of the things that people wanted to talk about a lot. Yeah. And for him, it was not it was not something that bothered him to talk about or something that he was uncomfortable about. Um, because, you know, he and his husband was a very, very visible surrogate for the campaign um, and ended up being sort of like a rock star in his in his own right. And someone that we could send out to, um, you know, do fundraisers for Pete, to do interviews for Pete, to do to stump for Pete. And so Pete's identity as, you know, one of the first major um, uh, openly gay candidates in American history was not something we shied away from because we understood that it, it was an asset and it was something that brought more attention to the campaign that um, uh, brought a lot of energy to the campaign because it was, you know, a historic moment. So um, it was something that reporters did want to talk about, but it was something that Pete was um, more than happy to engage in. And frankly, um, it brought a lot of energy to the campaign, you know, and some of the big moments, right? Like when he and Chaston were featured on the cover of Time Magazine, um, it was a moment that, we had a lot of um, Pete's, you know, LGBTQ supporters come up and say was something that they never thought they'd see in their lifetimes. And so it was something that we, we really tried to hone the energy around it. Um, and yes, the press did want to talk about it, but um, 
it, uh, I think Pete was more than happy to talk about it. And at a certain point though, it sort of almost became normalized. Um, and uh, because Pete didn't try to hide the ball on it, he didn't try to play coy about it. I mean, we, he, um, you know, he, he, he and Chaston campaigned in a, uh, in a very transparent, open way. And, um, what I think was really heartening about that was by the end of the campaign, <clears throat> that those questions, questions about, you know, his sexuality and all that, it almost never came up anymore. And it was almost like it was completely normalized. And I hope that, um, for campaigns going forward, certainly presidential campaigns going forward that, um, you know, he reduced the, um, exotic nature of it and makes it easier for and has made it easier for openly LGBTQ candidates to run for office. So Buttigieg did not end up winning the nomination, but he obviously became so well known that he is now transportation secretary. So I would make the argument that the strategy of going anywhere had some elements of success to it. But the person that ended up winning the nomination, Joe Biden, I don't think was on Barstool or Fox News or TMZ. And you could make an argument, well, he did the opposite thing and he's president of the United States right now. Yeah. So it all depends on the campaign. It all depends on the candidate. And it's not a strategy that would work for Joe Biden. And going back to, I think, your first question about, well, what who, what type of Democrat should Democrats nominate in Missouri going forward. And there's no, there's no like one size fits all um, way to campaign or way to be a candidate. And um, the go everywhere strategy worked for Pete because he is really quick on his feet. He is really good in interviews. He always has something interesting and fresh to say. Um, but it was also our only path to getting well known. So it was um, it was a strategy that played to his strengths, but it's also a strategy of necessity. Um, with Biden, Biden had 100% name ID when he entered the presidential race. He did not need to go everywhere um, to make himself known. And um, he was someone who was a really, really respected figure in the Democratic Party. And, you know, there's a lot more downside sometimes to, um, you know, opening yourself up to non-traditional interviews. And so it wouldn't have made sense for him as a strategy. And I'm not saying that it's a strategy that every candidate across the, the country should embrace. Um, it just happened to be an innovative strategy, a um, sort of bold strategy that worked really, really well for Pete. And it's one that I've seen more, uh, more and more uh, younger candidates embrace. Um, because I think that, uh, you know, younger candidates do understand the increasingly fractured nature of media consumption and the changing nature of how people consume their news because, you know, that's them, you know, they, they don't consume news just by reading the front page of, you know, the New York Times or watching cable news or anything like that. No, um, they get their news from non-traditional news sources. And so they understand that it's important to go and reach out to people and meet them where they are. And oftentimes that is going outside of the, you know, traditional legacy media. Um, and 
and being willing to have some fun with it and, you know, going on sports outlets, entertainment outlets, um, and, you know, talking more about pop culture or, you know, I don't know, whatever, whatever the news of the day is with the NFL or whatever it is. And that oftentimes that's a more effective way to reach voters than doing, you know, the traditional political interviews, which as we know with um, a lot of these outlets that their audiences are shrinking rather than growing. So how much of a tonal shift was it for you to be a part of this widely praised campaign for Pete Buttigieg in 2020? And then in 2021, you're in the behind the scenes mix when Andrew Cuomo was going down in flames. Oh, yeah. I mean, not even a tonal shift. I mean, just a complete it was a just it was a total shift. Um, And, you know, Andrew's someone who I'd worked for in 2018 on his um, I'd consulted for him on his gubernatorial reelection. And I remember um, at the time in 2018, I was also consulting for Pete on his political endeavors. And he was traveling the country, speaking at Democratic dinners. And um, he had a pack that he used to raise money for Democratic candidates across the country. And at the time, that was, it was very, um, it was very jarring because, you know, there'd be days I'd be in New York and I, you know, I'm, I'm mostly, I worked out of um, Cuomo's New York City office and I didn't, I didn't like travel with him when he would campaign. Um, but I, you know, I was a top advisor there and I would give him advice and his style was very much brass knuckles and brass knuckles against his, um, he had a primary opponent in Cynthia Nixon, who is the Sex and the City actress, but someone who had also been very active in New York politics. And then he had a general election and, you know, Cuomo's style is very much, you know, hammer you know everything is nail and he's a hammer um whereas pete has a very different style which is um you know you don't hear him engaging in a a ton of over-the-top negative rhetoric and his view on politics is that it's a game of addition not subtraction and you've got to give people permission to come along with you and that was one of the reasons why he did so well in the presidential campaign and especially in red areas because he didn't go out and um, he had a line where he said that, you know, your vote in the last presidential race doesn't define you and sort of to give people permission to come over and vote for this 37 year old openly gay Democrat and people who'd been, you know, Republicans forever. So I, for, for a couple of years, I dealt with this sort of tonal discordance, but then, yeah, there was, um, just the experience of everything with Pete was so inspiring, even though he didn't win. And it really showed the best, I think, of American politics. Um, He ran an incredibly inspiring, uplifting campaign that was based on, again, bringing people over to his side, not attacking the opposition. Um, Sure, he drew contrasts. Whereas with um, uh, Andrew Cuomo, you know, I, he called me um, and asked if I would help give him advice when he was facing um, uh, allegations of sexual harassment. And then he ended up just um, crashing and burning. And you know, within the course of a year, he had gone from being uh, seen as this like national hero who had done these masterful COVID briefings to resigning. Um, yeah. And resigning in disgrace. And so 
it was it was to to say it was like whiplash you know it, it was an it was an understatement and it gets to sort of one thing i want wanted to talk about in my book and it gets to my title any given tuesday which is that like on any given Tuesday, you know, you can like, you know, be working for someone like Pete Buttigieg, but then the next Tuesday you're working for someone like Andrew Cuomo. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, 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 I, and I, I wanted to get on that because I think this book has been widely praised. Okay. But if you've gotten any criticism, it's been by people who are like, how could you possibly try to help somebody like Andrew Cuomo yeah. who is accused of very serious sexual misconduct and they're just sort of befuddled, like why you would be involved in this dude. And I just I just want to provide some context here why I'm asking you this question. In Missouri in 2018, you had a very similar situation happen with Eric Grimes. And a lot of people that worked for him, both on a political side and on an official side, you know, kind of became embarrassed to work for him and, you know, probably didn't want to stick with them when he was going down in flames. So I, I'm interested to hear your perspective on on why you did what you did. Yeah, and there was um, definitely a personal element to it. One thing I talk about in my book is how in 2013, I went um, in December of 2013, I went from sort of being a staffer who helped shape stories to becoming a story myself. Um, and that was, I was um, working for the incoming mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio on his um, transition. And I was gonna be you know, his chief spokeswoman in city hall. But then um, the New York Post um, broke that I was um, dating Elliot Spitzer, the former governor of New York who'd been, you know, who'd been a, a bit scandal um, tarred himself. He'd had to resign and he's someone that I had consulted for months earlier. And, um, you know, I became a target in the tabloids. Um, Bill de Blasio completely, you know, threw me under the bus, fired me. And it was a really, really tough, alienating, isolating moment where, um, I just saw sort of the underbelly of politics, which is that like all these people who had been there and been my best friends and greatest friends when everything was going well for me, they were suddenly nowhere to be found when I'm in the middle of this firestorm. Um, and, you know, I lost friends over it. I lost, you know, it, it strained relationships with people who I'd considered trusted colleagues. I lost a job over it. And, um, you know, I'd always sort of, after that moment, wanted to be the person who wasn't like a cut and run artist, who um, wasn't like a typical uh, political climber, you know, someone who was just there for, for people in their best moments and not there for them in their worst moments. Um, and, you know, it, it, it really showed me just sort of an ugly side of politics. And to me, then going forward, I wanted to be the type of person that would be there for you, even in your lowest moments. And so when, um, so when Andrew Cuomo called me, he had been um, accused of sexual harassment by one former staffer. And this was in, I think, March of 2021. Um, you know, he denied, he denied, vigorously denied um, what he was accused of and promised to me and to other staffers that nothing else would come out. 
Um, and so I thought it was important then to be there for him and to advise him and to not just abandon him um, because it made no sense to me that um, he would lie to the people advising him, right? That does it, you know, when you're, if you want the best advice from people like me, it, and in anything having to do with crisis communications, you've got to be honest with the people advising you so that they know what can come out. Um, and, but it taught me an important lesson, which is that um, I had maybe taken the wrong lesson from my own experience where I viewed loyalty as the ultimate form of integrity. Um, and I didn't realize that you know, that there are multiple, there are different types of loyalty. There's earned loyalty, but there's also blind loyalty. And I think what I was exhibiting with Andrew Cuomo was more blind loyalty, where I was just going along with him because I thought loyalty mattered more than anything else. Um, but another thing I learned about loyalty too, is that it's gotta be a two-way street. And essentially he was asking people like me and, you know, a dozen other people to, put our, you know, to give up our time to advise him, to put our reputations on the line. But did he care about us at all and what the fallout would be for us? No. Um, and so sometimes in politics, staffers go out and they do put themselves on the line for politicians and learn the hard way that like the politicians don't really care about them and that the loyalty doesn't go both ways. You know, yesterday I saw a tweet from him that he still thinks that he didn't do anything wrong. And, you know, he, he seems to want to still get back into the mix. Is he just delusional? Like, yeah. are you, or, or do you think that, think that he didn't do anything wrong? No, I, I don't think that you can have um, that many sort of allegations of, of and, and certainly like with Greitens, right? Andrew, let's just be very clear. Andrew Cuomo was not accused of anything like that, right? The Greitens stuff was horrifying. And, but like with, I, 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 it would stretch credulity to think that you have these 11 allegations of, um, you know, sexual harassment and that there's not an element of truth to them. If it, it's not just one, two, three, or even four. Um, and at some point, there's a pattern that's established. And I think that um, uh, there was clearly a pattern that was established uh, in the attorney general's uh, report. And for me, what was um, a major red flag was that it was not something that, um, you know, Andrew, Governor Cuomo was forthcoming with his staff about. And um, even after he'd sat down with the attorney general for her report, he continued to lie to the people around him and say, nothing else is going to come out. Nothing else is going to come out. And I just don't think that those are the actions of, a, of an innocent person. I want to ask you a final few bits of questions that you can answer as shortly or as verbosely as possible. Some of them are on like modern day political prognosis. Prog Some of these are on modern day political prognosis. I, I can't say that word. Prognostication. Uh, others are a little bit more fun. So should Democrats be worried that Ron DeSantis is going to overtake Trump and is going to be a much more formidable candidate against Joe Biden or whoever is the Democratic nominee? 
No, I think that um, I think that DeSantis is sort of the flavor of the moment, but I think that he's very, very overrated. Um, he's someone who uh, whose political skills are questionable. I know he's someone who um, doesn't play well with others, but also isn't great at the glad handing aspect of politics. Um, it is pretty awkward interpersonally. I also um, think that he has a very narrow sort of appeal. Um, and it's it's similar to Trump's appeal, right? Um, and similar to Chris Christie's appeal before, which is that he what he's going out and saying to the Republican base is that, you know, you know, those people you hate, I, I hate them even more than you do. And with Christie, it was, you know, the teachers, public employees. With Trump, it was immigrants. And with DeSantis, it seems to be the public health experts. Um, but uh, I am not someone who buys into the DeSantis hype. If Joe Biden does not run for another term, would Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker be a more successful version of Michael Bloomberg in that she would be able to self-fund, but not look like a complete doofus doing it? I think that, yeah, I think Bloomberg, I think that Pritzker is a more talented politician than Bloomberg and is someone who, um, you know, is more in touch with the Democratic base than Mike Bloomberg is. Um, does Pete Buttigieg like living in Michigan more than he likes living in Indiana? Because <laughs> I know he moved to Michigan because his husband's family lives in Tra Traverse City. I may be pronouncing the name of that city, right? Yeah. So there's an actual reason for him to do it. I, I know that like people are like, well, he's moving to Michigan because it's a more democratic state and he wants to like run there. But if, I, if, I've if, never, if, I've never asked him that question, so I can't, I can't, so I don't feel comfortable answering on his behalf, but I, I think he loves, I think he loves, he loves both places. And, um, you know, he wrote a post on Medium over the weekend, um, where he, for the first time he talked about the challenging first. I, I read it. it was an unbelievable thing to, to read. Like and my so, kids have never had health challenges like his kids have had, but regardless of your political belief or your view of Buttigieg, you should read it. Right. And, and and it shed some light because I think a lot of people when he moved to Michigan were sort of viewing it through a political lens. And obviously, you know, I knew the backstory there. Right. But um, it it for them, with all the health challenges they had with their twins, it made sense for them to um, have a place where they could have, you know, um, child care via uh, Chasten's parents. And it makes their lives a lot easier. Taking out St. Louis and Kansas City, what was your favorite place to visit when you lived in Missouri? Um, I liked going to some towns like um, Hannibal was cool to visit because um, it's really picturesque. Um, I, I did like going to Columbia. Um, it, they, they had great restaurants there and bars, and that was a that was a fun place to visit as well. Um, but I liked visiting, you know, smaller towns like St. Joe and um, Hannibal. And Hannibal sticks out because it wasn't too far from St. Louis. And, you know, it obviously has uh, a lot of historical significance. What is your favorite song off the seminal Guns N' Roses album, Chinese Democracy? Oh my God, that's brutal, dude. That is brutal. Um, it's one of the I I I see guns I see Guns N' Roses whenever they go on tour now, and 
like I think if we're all gonna we're gonna be honest with each other, that's probably the least stimulating part. No, no, show. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you there. I am a Chinese democracy truther. I think it's legitimately a good album. It is not disappointing at all. And uh, the best song is the title track, in my opinion. But I was going to so I would say Chinese Democracy. So the ones that they play live, it's Chinese Democracy. They play the blues. There's maybe, and I think there's one other song that they always play live from Chinese Democracy. Might be IRS, Catcher in the Rye. I have never met anyone before who loves Chinese Democracy. So um, I, I'm very impressed by your commitment to it, but. I, I listened to it all the time when it first came out and I tried so hard because I love Guns N' Roses. I'm a true fan of theirs. I love Axel. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll redirect the question. What's just your favorite Guns N' Roses song? And then I'll give you mine and then we'll 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 part ways. Um, Estranged. Yes, that is my favorite one too. Really? Yes. It's I, so good. I, I think it is better than November Rain. Um, November Rain is obviously the more popular long song off of Use Your Illusions. It's such a great song. Such it's a great song. Well, Liz, thank you so much for talking with me. And if people want to know more about buying this book, obviously they can go to Amazon and type in the title. But is there any other thing you would want to like direct the listeners to to learn more about you or the book? Um, no, I would just encourage them. You go to your, it's, you know, on sale at your local bookstores and, you know, big, the, certainly the bigger websites like Amazon, Barnes and Noble, but, um, I would encourage people to read the book because one it's, um, I think it's a pretty quick read, but it's something where you can learn, you know, a, a lot about, um, a lot about politics because one thing that I thought was really important was to demystify politics because it is still an industry that is still opaque to so many people. So um, I would encourage everyone to go out and pick up a copy of any given Tuesday, whether it's from your local library or local bookstore. You can read all of St. Louis Public Radio's political coverage at stlpr.org. I'm Jason Rosenbaum, and thank you for listening. 